So today um, we will be touching the subject of social circulating capital, which is which is the whole the whole uh, aspect of real bills and marginal productivity, which uh, brings in the discount rate. So over to the professor. Thank you. I still owe you the outline for the uh, lecture yesterday on Adam Smith's real bills doctrine, and I also owe you the outline for the next lecture, number 15, which you haven't got. <coughs> And I haven't got it yet, but tomorrow, hopefully, I will get it. <coughs> In the meantime, we are discussing number 14, which is this morning's lecture. And you have the notes for that. We already talked about the uh, social circulating capital. This is an idea due to Adam Smith. It's very useful to think about the movement of consumer goods approaching the market as a river, which is emptying into the ocean. The ocean is your picture of consumption. Where consumer goods disappear, they are consumed, whereas the the uh, semi-finished goods and eventually becoming finished goods are moving to the consumer and they have to move with a certain velocity, and if that's the case, then we talk about circulating capital, social circulating capital. Uh, the word social refers to the fact that the ownership of that mass of goods is, <coughs> is really diffused. One might even say it's owned by the society at large, even under capitalism, there is such a thing as social ownership, and a particular example is uh, the circulating capital, social circulating capital. This is because there was a little discussion here in one of the breaks uh, not everybody was there, but I think it was a useful little discussion. Uh, the question is, the credit involved <coughs> in moving consumer goods to the consumer, in other words, the credit represented by real goods, is it a loan? Is the producer extending a loan to to the retailer, and I took the position that 
the answer is definitely not. There is no loan transaction involved. And the moment the retailer signs the bill I accept and gives it back to the uh, producer or the wholesaler, whatever the case may be, at that moment, this underlying good moving to the consumer becomes a public property. Society owns it. It's not helpful to think of individual ownership when the goods are moving because ownership does change very fast. So let's just say the credit is extended by society and the ownership is, is um, social. That's why we call it social circulating capital. Maybe you don't like that. I'm not very firm on this point, uh, whether this is helpful. Sometimes I think it is helpful to think of ownership. But the ownership question may not even come up. Uh, it, uh, the ownership is more in terms of the real bills than the <coughs> moving uh, goods. So there it is, a big mass of goods are constantly, continually moving to the consumer. Goods enter into that phase subject to the 91-day limitation. Before that, whatever these goods are, they are not part of the social circulating capital. They do become part when the 91-day limit allows uh, them to become part, and then they are part until the last consumer removes the good from the market and he will consume them. This, this is very important to treat these goods separate from all the other goods. There are other goods. There are bricks and mortar which go into buildings. There are, I mentioned the example of precision surgical instrument or the pliers of the dentist to talk about a less pleasant example. There are many other goods and they are also moving but we single out this particular movement of consumer goods which move fast enough and it's important though. Movement is important and that it has to move fast enough. If somebody arrests these goods for the purpose of speculation, that particular supply of good will immediately cease to be part of the social circulating capital. Now, it's easy to see that the composition of social circulating capital is changing. It's changing with the seasons of the year. 
There are different types of food, different types of clothes which are needed by the consumer according to the season, spring, summer, fall, winter. And uh, there might be also other changes having to do with consumer preferences, consumers uh, develop a taste for certain goods at the same time. No longer fond of another type of good, whether it's food or clothes. Fashion is a very good example. It's completely unpredictable what the ladies will prefer to wear in the summer. So, but one thing is sure, that they're tastes, their preferences will change. So together with the change of consumer preference, the type of clothes which the uh, shops will carry will also change. And uh, we can say the same thing for almost everything which is part and parcel of the social circulating capital. I um, uh, often uh, talk about skipping ropes, which little girls use in skipping on the street or playgrounds or at schoolyards, um, because I don't know why, but skipping ropes are not always conspicuous. Uh, for some reason, little girls uh, are subject to an epidemic of skipping rope <coughs> epidemic when, when all of them are skipping ropes, uh, whereas next year perhaps the, the fad disappears. Now, this is a good example for me because I illustrate that skipping ropes are normally not part of social circulating capital. Normally. But in certain years, we don't know why, but when little girls pick up the habit of doing the skipping, all of them, then uh, 10 times or 15 times as many skipping ropes are sold by the retail outlets. And uh, accordingly, the skipping ropes will be part and parcel of social circulating capital. But then they fall out of uh, social circulating capital next year when the, girls, school girls, do, uh, no longer uh, do this. Maybe in uh, physical education uh, classes they use it, but that's nothing in comparison when the epidemic hits, when really everybody wants, every little girl wants a skipping rope. Another example is the hula hoop. It's only certain years when hula hoops 
prays, invades the schools and society, and then hula hoops are part of social certain capital. Next year they fall out. So that's the way the uh, market provides for unexpected demands. It cannot be predicted, but once the demand is there, immediately bills can be drawn on skipping ropes. For previous 10 years, maybe skipping ropes could not be marketed and the manufacture and distribution of skipping ropes could not be financed by real bills. The bill market would not touch bills drawn on skipping ropes, but on that, in that particular year when the craze has hit, all of a sudden uh, you can draw bills on skipping ropes. And that's, that means that uh, society can concentrate resources in the very fast and efficient uh, supplying of skipping ropes to the outlets so that they will be available. Now, as I say, skipping ropes is just a funny little example, but there are many others uh, which uh, are far more important, but I like this example because that's really convincing. But, uh, you know, in fashions and in um, food preferences, in clothes preferences, and in many others, uh, you will find that um, unpredictable demand crops up out of nowhere, real builds will be able to finance the supply. It's an entirely different way of financing the uh, this production and distribution of consumer goods from the normal uh, demand, which doesn't show this kind of fluctuation. Uh, and um, it's a slower pace of the movement of consumer goods. In those examples, a real bill financing is not appropriate and it's financed through savings, interest, and this is something I indicated already is not subject of this course. We'll have to wait until another course uh, will go into the question of interest rates. Uh, but as far as the social circulating capital is concerned, <coughs> it's real bill it's the real bill which finances it. I already emphasized that there are two great sources of credit in society. One has to do with savings, the other has to do with consumption. In many uh, respects, these are opposite of one another, but we have to be very careful to distinguish between the two because these two sources of credit are, are entirely different. And it takes a different analysis. Now that's one flexibility about the social circulating capital, namely its composition. What 
is part and what is not part. There is one uh, criterion only which decides what belongs to social circuitry and capital, what doesn't. And that's the question whether real bills drawn on these goods will circulate or not. There is a bill market. I spent quite some time yesterday to explain that the bills are circulating. They are the primary assets of the banks in the old sense, commercial banks. The best earning asset a commercial bank can have is the real bill, maturing in 91 days. And that reflects the movement of uh, consumer goods to the market at a reasonably fast pace. So, if you want to decide what belongs and what does not belong to social circuit capital, you have to ask the question, if you draw a bill on these goods, would the bill market take them and circulate them? Because, uh, believe it or not, the bill market is very picky, very choosy, and it will this refuse to deal with a lot of bills for various reasons. In, uh, in one case it may be because <coughs> in the opinion of the bill market the goods don't move fast enough. And in uh, some other examples the reason may be that in the opinion of the bill market the uh, consumer demand is just not there to the extent that it justifies this risk-free, in quotation mark, risk-free nature of investing in bills. And there might be other reasons. And uh, there is no appeal. If the market rejects the bill, they won't circulate, then the verdict has been passed this particular good underlying that particular real bill is not part of social circulating capital. So that's one uh, flexibility which we are considering, the composition of social circulating capital. It's constantly changes, changes with the seasons, changes with consumer preferences and for any other reason it may uh, change. Uh, but there is also a second very important one uh, where the flexibility of social circulating capital uh, comes up. And this is quantity. This is the volume of social circulation. In, in the previous discussion we talked about the quality, the composition. But now it's more the quantity, uh, the social circulating capital can expand and can contract. In some cases it's predictable uh, because uh, uh, we know that for Christmas, uh, pre-Christmas shopping season, the volume of social circulating capital expands. So say in the month of November and December, social circulating capital is beefed up. Uh, a much 
wider variety of goods are offered, offered by the uh, retailers uh, for the consumer to choose for, for Christmas gift giving or whatever. And uh, in January, the opposite happens. The uh, social uh, circulating capital contracts rather substantially. You will see that retailers might even close their shops for inventory taking, and uh, you will see that uh, they uh, have uh, sales, uh, reduced sales, the uh, merchandise which was not sold during the pre-Christmas season will be uh, marked down and offered to the consumer at a discount. This, but of course they are not reordered. They, the uh, retailers want to clear their shelves and storage space to get prepared for a different type of merchandise for the spring season. So in January, generally speaking, there is a big contraction of social circulating capital. Well, this is easy to predict because every year is the same. But there might be other reasons for uh, the expansion and contraction of social circuiting capital, which are unpredictable. They may have to do with uh, uh, natural disasters after uh, natural disaster people tend to save, spend less, and the social circulating capital will immediately react by a contraction. And uh, a recession or depression would have the same effect. Uh, people uh, are very conscious of saving, and they are not spending as uh, freely as they did Earlier, um, the social circulating capital will pick up the signal. We'll talk about this in more detail, how they pick up the signal. And they will contract the retailers, thin out merchandise on their shelves. Um, uh, the uh, river <coughs> example is very helpful here too because uh, after a lot of rain fell in the mountains, the, the river gets wider, may even overflow its banks, and, uh, and then it will contract when the rainy season is over. So uh, this, these two types of changes in the composition and in the volume of the social uh, circulating capital is uh, subject to a lot of inquiry and, and, uh, and uh, questioning because it's, it's like a miracle. You, you 
just want to see how is it that the market reacts almost instantaneously to the mood of the consumer because ultimately the consumer is in charge. You think of the Peter's crown which he projected on the wall. The consumer is the uh, uh, what's the word? Sovereign. sovereign. The sovereign consumer. There's no appeal. If the consumer says I want it, that's the law. If the consumer says I don't want it or I wanted uh, less of it, that's the law. No appeal. And uh, the uh, as if by magic, all the retailers get the message and adjust. And we are going to see how. And that concept, which helps us understanding this, how the message is uh, passed on, how the adjustment is made almost instantaneously, is, uh, has to do with the concept of the marginal productivity of social circulating capital. So uh, this is a concept which we are introducing to describe the, uh, uh, this uh, interaction between the consumers and the and let's say the producers, consumers, producers and distributors of the consumer. The concept of marginal productivity of social circuiting capital is really synonymous with the velocity of the movement of uh, goods. Uh, from uh, here's the producer, here are the consumers, and there is we we imagine that these consumer goods make the trip take some time. Now they can make this movement very very slowly, or they can make the movement relatively fast, and in some cases very very fast. And the market is quite prepared to deal with these different contingencies. If the movement is very slow, we have dealt with that question already, then the particular good falls out of social circuiting capital and it's no longer our concern how this uh, finishes its trip. There has to be a minimum speed and once that minimum speed is achieved or uh, occurring, then the particular good is part of social circuiting capital. Bills can be drawn on them, and their movement is financed by real bills rather than um, uh, savings. But still there is a wide variety of different speeds which are possible. And uh, we are going to describe this in terms of productivity. So <coughs> I take 
the uh, example of sauerkraut in bottles and by uh, those of you who have studied Mises, human action, will realize that this is not very original of me because Mises also takes the bottle of sauerkraut as an example in a quite a different uh, context. Uh, but I, I just thought that I will borrow this idea from Mises and I describe productivity of uh, social circulating capital in terms of, uh, but through this example of bottles of sauerkraut. Mises, by the way, denies that uh, you can deny, you can define meaningfully the productivity of a consumer good. He believes in marginal productivity, but he denies that productivity of an isolated item can be meaningfully introduced. So again, I take issue with him, and I allow you to be the judge. You know whether I am justified in criticizing Mises in this sense. So just. Uh, think of that very simple example of a bottle of sauerkraut which is sitting on the shelf of the retailer, think of a small or medium-sized supermarket or even a large supermarket, the uh, bottles of sauerkraut are sh sitting on the, on the shelf for so long and then the consumer comes and picks up a bottle puts it in the basket, pays it the cashier, and so on. So, the uh, uh, productivity of sauerkraut, <laughs> in my dictionary, is defined as, or it is determined by the length of the sojourn of the sauerkraut on the shelf. It might be sitting there for a couple of months, but you have that experience when you shop at supermarkets that sometimes the, uh, the supermarket cannot keep the uh, uh, items on the shelf because they are picked up by the consumer in such a haste that you know they have to replenish them very often. So. Uh, the question is, what is the productivity of the sauerkraut? And um, that's a very simple idea. You uh, take the uh, retail markup on the sauerkraut and divide it by the length of time it's sitting on the shelf and when you annualize it, you come up with a percentage and it's usually a rather small percentage. Uh, this, uh, this example is explained, uh, lecture 14, page, bottom of page 2 and the top of page 3. So I'll, I leave it to you as a, an exercise to read it. I don't think you'll have any difficulty in, ex in understanding this. The outcome is that the productivity of sauerkraut uh, 
is 2% at that particular time, which is subject to change, of course. The consumer may um, like the taste of it, and then they will buy more. In that case, the productivity goes up. If, uh, for some reason, they uh, uh, like it less, then the productivity will be lower. In any case, there is a productivity. Uh, I, I really don't understand why Mises would uh, not accept this argument. That yes, indeed, sauerkraut, as any other item on the shelf of the supermarket, has its own productivity. If you are the manager of a supermarket, you would know this very well, and you will keep an eye on the highest productivity items because you have to replenish uh, the shelves with the merch and even reorder this so you send an urgent order to the supplier that we are running short and we don't want to see the, the, uh, item disappear, the item in the highest demand disappear from the shaft because this means lost sales for me and for you and for everybody else along the line who is supplying these goods. So this is a common everyday experience and, uh, and uh, by the way, soup, uh, sauerkraut. Uh, you have to know that uh, Austria is the land of sauerkraut, and so is Hungary. This is a very popular in North America. Um, <laughs> this example is perhaps not as fitting as they are here in Central Europe. Sauerkraut is a staple food. It's good for many things. It's good for cooking, of course. Wonderful dishes you can cook with the. Uh, Sauerkraut, but it's, it can be consumed right out of the bottle. In the summertime, if it's ice cold, it could be a very refreshing uh, snack. And uh, enough of that. <laughs> enough of that. Uh, that was Mises' example, and I took it over. So there it is. You have the productivity of sauerkraut. Now, the point I'm making is that every single item on the shelf, without exception, has a productivity which can be calculated the same way. And I already hinted that the manager or the retailer, I usually refer to him as the retailer, a retail merchant, keeps an eye on the highest productivity because he has to replenish uh, the items on the shelf. But really, the important thing which the marginal, which the shopkeeper, the, the retailer does, is watching the least productive item. So it's one thing, the most productive, but for an entirely different reason, he is watching like a hawk the least productive item, which could be sauerkraut. And 
Now this is the question, and I'm putting it to you. What is the reason the shopkeeper is interested in the least productive item? Why, why is he interested? Uh, it's not something we will no longer sell in the future. It's not something he's willing to sell in the future. Yeah, yeah. The reason is because if the productivity drops more, he may just stop reordering it. He will let the uh, existing inventory run out and be sold out. But he says, no, with that low productivity, I am no longer satisfied to carry that item. And this means that he will not reorder. Once the last bottle of sauerkraut is sold, there will be no more sauerkraut. If you want sauerkraut, you have to go to a specialty shop or to the, to the producer and request it directly. But these uh, general outlets, these retailers, will no longer carry it because the productivity is too low. They think that they can invest their capital better than uh, carrying an inventory of sauerkraut when sauerkraut is in uh, low demand. And that's what's happened happening and uh, there is no appeal against this because the it was the consumer who decided that and the uh, uh, retailer is just a servant of the consumer of the sovereign consumer and uh, he will have to deploy his limited amount of capital in a better way so sauerkraut is gone Now, therefore, it might be tempting to say that the marginal productivity of social circulating capital is the lowest productivity of the item on the shelf of the shopkeeper. There is one trouble with this definition. And the trouble is that uh, there are different retailers and they work with different uh, results. And for some, uh, the uh, particular item, which you call marginal sauerkraut in this case, is, is the lowest, but some others it may not be. So this definition would be ambiguous. And of course, an ambiguous definition is no good. You cannot build a theory on them. So we have to refine the concept. And to do that, we introduce the concept of the marginal shopkeeper. Okay? The marginal shopkeeper. There are lots and lots and lots of shopkeepers. They are more or less successful. And we take the least successful shopkeeper who's still in business. Those who are below that have already closed the shop and went uh, into another trade. Maybe they went to work uh, for wages because they could not make 
their business successful. So the marginal shock is the the one among all the shopkeepers who uh, is still in business, but if he uh, fell further down, then he might be tempted to close in shop. So what decides the marginal productivity of social circulating capital is the marginal item on the shelf of the marginal shopkeeper. So please note that the word marginal is used twice in, in one sentence. On the one hand, we call the marginal shopkeeper, and on the other hand, we refer to the marginal item on his shelves. When these two uh, marginal uh, uh, ingredients are cons considered, then you have precisely the point uh, where the uh, decision is made whether a certain item falls out of social circuit in capital, but there's also the reverse. If business picks up, then the marginal shopkeeper will realize that he has lots of empty space on his shelf, so he can afford to carry a new item on the shelf, display a new item on the shelf, which now in view of the greater demand has a good chance to have the productivity and it can compete with the other items, you see. So, in other words, the social circulating capital can contract. And this contraction takes place on the shelf of the marginal shopkeeper when he decides not to reorder a certain item say sauerkraut. This sauerkraut then will disappear from his shelf when the last bottle is sold and no more sauerkraut available in the retail. And the uh, marginal productivity went lower in response to the consumer demand. Now, if consumer demand changes, increases, then the marginal shopkeeper will want to refill his empty shelf space with giving, giving new choice, uh, uh, greater choice to the consumer. And uh, he may reorder sauerkraut, but he, he may reorder something else. Of course, his keenness of sense what the consumer wants will be a great guiding principle for him to decide what is that new marginal item which he will put on the shelf, which up to now was not available, but now he wants to make it, make it available to the consumer. So, 
That's the mechanism. <coughs> it's a very fine, very uh, delicate me mechanism it is. And, uh, and uh, you, you think about this, and I hope you will agree with me that this is quite important to look, look at in this sense. The uh, change in marginal productivity of uh, circulating, social circulating capital through the agency of the marginal shopkeeper. The word propensity to consume is notoriously due to uh, John Maynard Keynes. And of course I'm in total opposition to his teachings and his ideas. But I did find the uh, term uh, propitious. I am using it. So I would say the propensity to consume is uh, going to decide uh, the actual volume of the social circulating capital and it works on the margin, it works on the marginal product, uh, the, the thing which I have explained. And of course there is the the uh, complementary idea of propensity to save, uh, which is also Keynes. And, uh, and uh, we are going to talk about this uh, in another course. I'm just saying to you at this stage that it would be a mistake to say that these two propensities are, are complementary in the sense that there's some total is always the same and uh, therefore any increase in propensity to consume must mean contraction, propensity to save and vice versa. This is not the case and the reason is uh, again Menger who as we know uh, brought in the idea of liquidity and uh, marketability in the small, marketability in the large, and uh, there is such a thing as, uh, as a propensity uh, to liquidity preference, I think is the word, liquidity preference. So sandwiched between the propensity to consume and propensity to save, there's liquidity preference, which determines the size of the cash on hand held by the consumer. And this uh, makes it possible that the propensity to save and propensity to consume could vary independently of one another. There's no rigid relationship, reciprocal relationship between two. But as I say, this is not really our subject here. I just want to give you that uh, uh, 
broader context. So we have now the concept of marginal productivity of social circulating capital. The merchandise with the lowest productivity on the shelf of the marginal shopkeeper is called the marginal item of social circulating capital. And that is the critical item which could, uh, in the case of expansion, appear or in the case of contraction, disappear from the shop. Uh, what it means is, of course, that if it, uh, in case of contraction, the marginal item disappears, no more bills will be discounted or sold against the movement of that particular uh, item. It doesn't mean that it's no longer available. It's available, but not as widely because it will be the specialty shop where you have to go to the producer directly to secure your next bottle of uh, sauerkraut. <laughs> the point is that uh, there will still be a marginal item. You see, the sauerkraut dropped out. It disappeared. It was the marginal item, but now it's no longer in part and parcel of social circuiting capital. So uh, we have no more marginal item? No, we certainly do, but it will be another. So you see, uh, the marginal item is a role, it's not an item as such because that role is going to be played by different items, different consumer goods. Just uh, as we did discuss the marginal, consumer marginal producer in determining the asked price and the bid price, uh, in the same way now this marginal item is a role, it's not a, a a fixed uh, item, but a role which is played by uh, different items. And uh, let's just uh, look at this a little more closely. Let's assume that there is a contraction in demand. The propensity to consume falls. And as a result, the uh, let's say the sauerkraut which was up to now the marginal uh, item on the shelf of the marginal shopkeeper falls out. A new, not a new, but another item on the shelf will take over the role to play by the marginal item. Okay. So there will still be a marginal item, but it will be played by another uh, uh, consumer good on the shelf. The question is, what does this mean in terms of productivity? Uh, more uh, precisely, is the marginal productivity of uh, social circulating capital increasing or decreasing at this point? What is your... At what point? At the point where an item is removed. 
the marginal item, the old marginal item fell out. It's no longer part of the So the the answer is improve. The marginal productivity of social circulating capital has gone up. A lot of people might be tempted to say the opposite, but the correct answer is Louis' answer. It went up because the role of the marginal item is taken over by another consumer good which has a higher productivity. It cannot have a lower because the low productivity has already fallen out. So the marginal productivity of social circulating capital is increasing when the propensity to consume decreases, just inverse. And the converse is also true. If the, if the propensity to consume decreases, no, that's what we just considered. When the propensity to consume increases, what happens to the marginal productivity of social circulating capital? It will decrease. Why will it decrease? Because if the consumer demand picks up, people send, spend their money more freely. The marginal shopkeeper will sense this immediately and he will realize that now he can afford to fill some of the empty space on his shelf. So he will look around what would be the best thing, to, new item to offer to the consumer and he will pick one and put it on the shelf. But the point is that this item he picks is a new item in the sense that it had too low a productivity up to now and that's why it was not on the shelf but he wants to put it back on the he wants to put it on the shelf and in order to do that what it means is that he the new marginal item will have a lower productivity he brings in from the uh, from the outside and now offers to the this is very important for you to understand. This is on page three of my little handout. And please read it carefully, make sure you understand. If you have a vague feeling, then please bring it up. Uh, if, if not immediately, then maybe this afternoon, tomorrow, whenever it occurs to you that this needs more clarification. I'm referring to the inverse relationship between the propensity to consume on the one hand and the marginal productivity of uh, social circulating capital. So that's a rate. We are talking about a rate. It can be expressed um, the marginal productivity. Uh, and, as an annualized rate, it is the, in terms of the markup of the marginal shopkeeper, and it is the productivity of this particular item. Now, the uh, sentence 
the single sentence which combines all this long discussion which has taken an hour for me to go through, it can be summarized in one sentence and it reads as follows. It's page three. It should have been printed in italics. It's not, so you can underline it. It's the last paragraph of uh, the bottom of page three. The productivity of the marginal item is called the rate of marginal productivity of social circulating capital. It is the rate at which the opportunity cost of carrying the marginal item on the shelf becomes critical to the marginal shopkeeper. And in parentheses it's explained who the marginal shopkeeper is. The, it is the first shopkeeper to change the composition of his stocks in response to changes in the propensity to consume. The reference is to the marginal shopkeeper's opportunity. You see the word opportunity cost uh, refers to something. So now we answer the question what opportunity. The reference is to the marginal shopkeeper's opportunity to carry in his portfolio. That leads to the next uh, topic we'll discuss this afternoon. To, uh, to carry in his portfolio bills drawn on other shopkeepers against faster moving merchandise rather than carrying on the shelf a marginal item. So with this I close now. Uh, this sentence is forward-looking sentence because I have to explain uh, the reference to the bill market. You see, this is another arbitrage. We look at this in this afternoon's lecture. We look at this as arbitrage of the marginal shopkeeper who has a choice. He can carry his capital in the form of goods on, the on his shelves, but he can also carry his capital in the form of a portfolio of bills which are drawn on faster moving merchandise ordered by other shopkeepers who work with higher productivity and this fine arbitrage between the two markets, on the one hand consumer goods market, on the other the bill market, and there's this arbitrage done by the marginal shopkeeper is at the heart of this particular theory. And you may notice the similarities this arbitrage and the arbitrage in determining the ask price, the bid price, and this idea is everywhere. This is all part of the uh, uh, coordination changes which the entrepreneurs, in this case the marginal shopkeeper, will be instrumental in doing. So with this I call it half an hour break. An hour Coffee. Break. See you in half an hour. There, mu there must be uh, a whole series of questions that everybody is eager to ask after the end of that. Um, but before we do, 
Um, I will just show you that uh, I'm not always gold basis. My day job was equities, and I still like equities, and I still like applying whatever I learn to equities. And it's very easy to do the calculation that uh, Professor talks about in terms of calculating the productivity of the marginal, uh, the productivity of the goods that the shopkeeper holds. Now, it's very easy to figure out uh, operating profit. Operating profit is profit post all of your cost of goods, after depreciation, after amortization as well. So uh, if you have a, an operating profit of five on, on sales of 100, you know, you've got a 5% a markup. Who did that? EBIT. EBIT. EBIT, not EBITDA. Post depreciation, post amortization, pre-interest, pre-tax. What is EBIT? Uh, earnings before interest and tax. Yeah. So that's uh, that's broker talk, but the synonym for that is operating profit. So it's quite easy to figure out what the markup is from the P&L. Right. Now, how do you calculate the sojourn? Does anyone know? The what? The sojourn. What the hell is that? If you have access to the profit and loss, yeah. the balance sheets, and the cash flow, the sojourn is the length of time that the item spends on the shelf. Okay. Does anyone know? It's very easy. You look at the balance sheet, working capital, uh, debtors, creditors, and what's the missing part of working capital there? Inventory, stock. So let's say stock is 20. You look at the ratio of sales to inventory to calculate an approximate figure for the sojourn. Okay. So I recommend that everybody, you know, go and get the balance sheets of as many shopkeepers as they can, as I did. You know, the publicly traded companies are not the best thing to, to do this calculation for because they're not, uh, they're not the way they originally were. You know, Tesco's is a, is a fully integrated company now and, you know, it, it doesn't just sell fruit and vegetables as it did, you know, back in the 50s or whatnot. But you can still get the accounts of, you know, in the UK anyway, you can get the accounts of any, any pub, any limited company. You know, so if you see, uh, I don't know, an electrical shop on the high street, go, go and get their accounts and go and do this calculation because it's very interesting. And then list the productivity and find the marginal, the marginal item yourself. So it's, it's not just theory, this is practice as well. Practice as well. Right. So, questions? Stunned silence. <laughs> is that our homework? <laughs> That's your homework. It's to get the balance sheet of every retailer on planet Earth. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> on the street of the Trans 47. <laughs> ben. What does propensity 
propensity to consume mean? First one. What does propensity to consume mean? Um, <clears throat> All right, propensity to consume means that uh, perhaps we should think first in terms of changes in propensity to consume. If consumers are inclined to spend more of their income, then we say the propensity to consume is increasing. If for any reason the uh, inclination to spend drops, then we say the propensity to consume decreases. This is a fairly uh, intuitive idea. Now, if you want to make it mathematical, I, I would have to take a little time uh, to think about before I could, but perhaps you are ready to... No. <laughs> I'm not, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, mathematical description. As, as I said, it's an idea coming from Keynes. Mm. Uh, and uh, I just find it useful to borrow it from his book and uh, it gives you this idea of the relative movement of the marginal productivity. <coughs> well, um, I, I have some idea how I would approach it mathematically. It would somehow be the reciprocal of the marginal productivity mm -hmm. of social circuit in capital. Uh, which is a number, which is a rate, yeah. so you could take it reciprocal. But uh, one would like to be careful and uh, see if other things can be taken into, into account. A lot of psychological factor there. When people feel rich, they're more likely to spend. And if they see their equity growing and their shares going, if this changes around, or perception changes around, you're likely to hoard. What Professor said was liquidity preference, call it hoarding. Mm -hmm. And then whether you save it or spend it or hoard it depends on your perception of how things are going. That's why it's so important to manage expectations. Uh, it, it should be intuitively clear that mm -hmm. there is such a thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because uh, yeah, you, especially we experience now a period when people are retrenching. They are. This is falling marginal, falling propensity to consume. That's the period we are in, and we are hoping this will change back to no more normal level of propensity to consume. Uh, so it's a it's a useful useful idea. The same way propensity to save, but they are not in rigid relationship as I pointed out. Mark, you were mentioning that there was two kind of savings, like consumer related savings and, and uh, another concept, the normal traditional saving, and I guess 
this has got something to do with the different interest rates, discount rate. I'm not sure. Could you perhaps go into this, or is this a, like this is upcoming? So I think that that will be the subject of the afternoon lecture, won't it? The introduction of the discount rate. The, the, yeah, 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 and the uh, arbitrage between. Uh, the arbitrage of the marginal shopkeeper between the consumer goods market and the... But you mentioned interest rate? I wasn't sure if interest rate, if you were saying this term consumer-related saving or something, I didn't quite get this. Consumer-related saving? I think, I think uh, the professor was saying then there's uh, consumption and there's savings. Yeah. And uh, uh, consumptions uh, is more related to a discount rate uh, concept. And ah. savings is more related to an interest rate concept. And the two are quite distinct. The formation of each. And this more, more on this later. <laughs> okay. So that, yeah. Yeah, but this is anticipating something we are not going to cover in this course. This comes in a future course where we discuss interest rates per se. I'm just mentioning interest rates here as a, in, by way of comparison, that one should not confuse the two. Well, it was all perfectly crystal clear then, I think. <laughs> well, we have time. Uh, well, since you took up that subject, uh, but you did mention sauerkraut. Sauerkraut. <laughs> <laughs> no. But, uh, because we are talking about one particular item mm. and the productivity of that particular item. Mm. So I, I, this is more general. This is more general. I mean, it makes more sense if you're talking about, you know, a retailer who just sells televisions, for example, you know, and you have to compare it to another retailer that sells radios. Now, there aren't retailers that just sell televisions and retailers that just sell radios. You know, so you have to consider the set, you know, of, of, of you know, you, you can't, you can't, boil it down to as perfect a, a calculation as you want, you know. But you still have shops that sell different types of goods, you know. Dixon's in the United Kingdom is a good example, you know, Dixon's just sells electrical goods. Now Dixon's might be next door to a super drug which sells cosmetics and shampoos um, and, and whatnot like that, you know. So. There is a limit to which you can take it, but you can still more or less approximate without actually running the business yourself what the productivity of these various these various items is or are. And what's the practical use of this? Well, you you can calculate what the professor is is talking about here. It's it's uh, it's good to know. Yeah, and him. Probably. Dixon is not the marginal shopkeeper, no? Might not be, might not be, might not be. There might be other shops like Dixon's, you know, that sell electrical goods, 
you know. I can't think of many. They've all gone out of business, to tell the truth. Uh, but, um, yeah, you know. Why would you want to know this? Well, the idea is that you ultimately want to find what the approximation to the discount rate would be, you know. There is no market-observed discount rate at the moment. That doesn't mean that a discount rate doesn't exist. You know, it's just hidden somewhere. You know, just like, and we're going off subject here, you know, the, the Wixellian concept of the natural rate of interest versus the market rate of interest, you know. You need to find a way of approximating what this natural rate of interest is, you know, when there is no actual tangible way of doing it. You know, you can only, you can only get a grasp of its boundaries, as it were, you know. But what is this natural rate of interest? I mean, this is a whole other topic. This is another topic. But is it just in short sentence the increasing productivity under a gold standard? No. <laughs> short sentence. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, we're going off kilter here. But the point is that you know, when when you say, for example, that you're going to you're going to lend out 90% of all deposits that you receive, you're going against the subjective preference of what the people would actually want. So you're deviating from a natural rate, <coughs> you know. So it's, it's a similar concept, you know. Unless you actually get back to the mechanical process, you can't see how the difference arises in the first place. The liquidity preference. I don't know, what is that? <laughs> Don't throw these broker terms at me. <laughs> I mean, well, demand for cash. Right, demand for cash. That's hoarding. Yeah. That's what you stuff into your pillow. Yeah. Hopefully, it's gold, not paper. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, uh, there's a little time, so I think I, I want to touch on that uh, subject of the social circulating capital today. I mean, we don't have a bill market, but we do have social circulating capital. What happened is, or at least this I think is a good way of describing, or trying to understand what has happened, is that the banking system has hijacked social circulating capital. So this is a dramatic development. The bill market was a completely open market because the bill itself is an open document. It lists the uh, item by item the uh, consumer goods which are being shipped or sold and uh, or where they are stored or they are shipped and in what form, whether it's air freight or uh, ocean uh, transportation, name of the boat, insurance documents, etc. They're completely open if somebody wants to know how much of a certain type of bill is changing hands. That's very easy to get uh, this type of information. Now what happened is that I explained yesterday that you can have 
real bills and the market for real bills without the banking system. Not one single bank, but the bills have their own wings and own power and they can circulate that way. When uh, banks appear on the scene, and I think historically it's correct to say that banks have appeared on the scene later. There were bills circulating first, and banks were attracted. And uh, there is a good aspect of that, the appearance of banks, and there's a, a bad, a sinister uh, aspect of appearing the appearance of the banks. And I usually explain it in terms of two uh, intermediate concepts. Before banks appeared, there was a so-called discount house and there was an acceptance house. Now the discount house is the good guy, out of which the good type of banking evolved. And the acceptance house is the bad guy. This is perhaps too much of a generalization, but it might be useful to think of uh, the evolution of the banks in uh, these terms. That there was the good guy and the bad guy. Now, the discount house is a business which buys up maturing bids and then collects, just finds the uh, the drawee who is ultimately responsible for, for paying the bill and presents the bill and collects, okay? And of course, the, takes a cut appropriate to the services rendered. And uh, that makes it very convenient because if you just hold the bill for a certain amount of time because it's an earning asset and you need an earning asset, you don't want to carry large amounts of cash which do not earn any return, then there's the problem how about to do with the bill after maturity because once the bill is mature, no more uh, earning is involved. The, earning aspect of the bill has stopped. It still has a value which you can collect, but unless you collect immediately, you are losing out. So it's very good to have an institution such as the discount house, where you take your maturing bill shortly before maturity and then sell it to the discount house. And discount house specializes in collections, so you'll know exactly what to do. That explains the good aspect of commercial banking, because that's really what the commercial bank does. You know, it acquires bills uh, and keeps them to maturity and then collect, and, and this is an earning asset for the bank too. So that's the good aspect. Now, the sinister 
aspect of commercial banking grew out, as I suggested, from the acceptance house. The acceptance business uh, owes its existence to the tremendous success of the real builds. And it attracted imitators, and a lot of the imitators uh, followed the form, but not the substance of the real bill the trading. For example, those who speculated in increasing grain prices, knowing that there's a poor harvest or any other reason, then you could take two tradesmen, one is the miller who had a flour mill and the baker and they used grain to make it available to consumer in the form of bread and uh, they could conspire. They could conspire in the sense that they, rather than move the wheat or flour or any other form, they arrest the movement and hold it in storage because they hope that if they wait, they will be able to sell the wheat at a better price. This is completely against the the real bills doctrine, which assumes the movement. Movement has to be fast enough to qualify the bill for circulation. But if there are these speculators, what is wrong with this is not speculation per se. What is wrong is that you are speculating with other people's money, and that's the bad thing. As long as you speculate with your own money, it's, uh, it's your business. And who are we to criticize whether it's good or bad? If you are good at it, you help society and you help yourself to profits, but only if society benefits. The bad thing is when you speculate with other people's funds. And that's what's happening in the case of a conspiracy between the miller and the baker arresting, in arresting the movement of the wheat. They pretend that the wheat is moving, but this is just a pretense. In fact, the wheat has been arrested, the movement has been arrested. And, uh, and they try to take advantage of the lower discount rate uh, as opposed to the higher interest rate. If they want to do it properly, they would have to find a venture capitalist if they haven't got their own money. And the three of them, Miller, Baker, and the venture capitalist, decides that it's a good uh, idea to store wheat in expectation of higher price, and then uh, finance this, but that will be financed in terms of the higher interest rate. But if you try to finance it uh, in such an underhanded way through the conspiracy of the two of them, the Miller and the Baker, then 
it's at the expense of society because the lower discount rate is, discount rate is made available by society to finance the movement of these absolutely necessary consumer goods which have to be available to, cons to the consumer. So, as I say, the, there was a temptation to imitate real bill circulation even when the necessary elements were missing, such as movement. And uh, the acceptance house uh, was born of the idea that any kind of bill we can put in circulation because all is necessary for the, for the acceptance house is to make sure that it won't lose money at the end of the transaction. And you can do this if you insist on a collateral. So here's somebody, a speculator or just somebody who wants to spend money and finance his uh, uh, consumption at a lower rate and offers a bill which he signs and even invents something, some imaginary goods, he would list it on the bill and invent a boat, good, imaginary good is in the bottom of the imaginary boat and uh, fake it that this is a real transaction and goes to the acceptance house, I mean the discount house would reject it out of hand, it's ridiculous, you know, they would know that there's no such boat, there's no such good, but the acceptance house doesn't care, he says, okay, you want that much money, fine, put up collateral, it could be a bond, could be stocks, could be real estate documents or something. And, and uh, as long as the acceptance house uh, is satisfied that even if that bill goes bad, they won't be, it won't be paid in gold at maturity, he, uh, the acceptance house can take responsibility for it because then it will satisfy itself by liquidating the collateral. The collateral has to have a higher nominal value than the face value of this uh, fictitious bill. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, this goes and even the discount rate could be low enough and the name of the acceptance house is, has such a high recognition usually families which have several previous generations of successful uh, activity in the bill market uh, and uh, the people won't ask any questions because the acceptance house accepted the bill prior to maturity which is a guarantee that the acceptance house will pay the bill regardless of whatever the underlying uh, transaction is. And, uh, and this might work for some time. What is necessary for us to see is that it might work for some time, but it might not work forever, because as Lincoln said, you can fool some people some of the time, even all the people some of the time, 
and, uh, and uh, some people all the time, but you can be sure that you will not be able to fool all the people all of the time, which is involved in this kind of a fraud in all these, uh, the activities of the acceptance house. I'm not saying that all acceptance houses were bad. Some of them were, uh, were uh, honest uh, operations, uh, trying to help the bill market to function properly. But uh, th there was this type of uh, temptation to commit fraud. Now, what goes wrong with this is that if too many uh, acceptance houses are trying to do this, then the volume of these bills will be uh, too high. And therefore, the acceptance house will have to, the various acceptance houses will have to liquidate the collateral simultaneously. So let's assume that these collaterals are bonds and then all these bonds are dumped on the market at the same time which will result in a, a, a fall of the value of the bond and therefore it can happen that the, uh, uh, liquid, the liquidation of the collateral is not yielding enough for the acceptance how to satisfy its own claim and, and uh, the acceptance house is in danger of, uh, of collapsing. And uh, the bond market, which means higher interest rate, and the real estate market, if, if there are mortgages involved in this type of collateral which we talk about. So all the garbage is accumulating in the attic and one point is reached when the whole thing comes crashing down. And this did happen. The one famous example, the Baring Brothers of London, a very, it was a very good name, but it started speculating in Argentina or somewhere, and as a result, the, uh, the uh, uh, acceptance house collapsed. Now, what I'm suggesting is that the bad aspect of commercial banking is embodied by the acceptance house because what happens is that the banker, the com commercial banker, conspires with, say, the baker and uh, starts rolling over bills and this is a no-no. A bill it must never be rolled over. if. The gold is not available at maturity, then the bill has to be paid all the same. It must not be rolled over. And as long as the only the uh, uh, discount house is involved, it's easy to see that bills are not being rolled over. But once the acceptance house or under a different uh, sign, a bank, uh, is getting into this business and um, fall into the temptation of committing fraud, then what happens is that the, uh, say the baker has a bill discounted and he, he couldn't pay at maturity, so he goes to the bank and says, hey, why don't you do me a favor? 
just roll over this bill, pretend that this is now an entirely new transaction, but it's still the same flour which the baker could not, uh, uh, or the baker held back the flour from the market in hope of higher prices, whatever. The fact is that some of the commercial bankers will be open to this temptation and say, okay, with, for a consideration, I will do it for you. And here, since the bill is accepted, it will circulate the same way. But that's uh, a fiction, because the underlying good is not there, or it's not moving. And, and this, well, you, you can use another phrase. You can say that the corrupt banker shelters the bad paper in the portfolio. It's no longer in the public domain because you have no right to inspect what is in the portfolio of the banker. The banker protects bad business, puts, his, uh, puts a good name on a bad business. Uh, this is what, what has happened in many cases, and I'm suggesting it to you, this is what is going on today, where the commercial banks, big and small, uh, have hijacked social circulating capital, squeezed out the bill market. No more bill market today. It simply doesn't exist. But the social circulating capital does exist. I mean, whatever we eat, whatever clothes we put on, and uh, whatever fuel we burn is all part of social circulating capital. But the way it's being financed, the movement of that social circulating capital is fraudulent because rather than in the open bill market where everybody could see what's uh, being traded what, uh, and how fast they are, these are moving to the consumer, instead there is this cozy agreement between the commercial banker and the traders. And it's a, a breeding ground of corruption. And therefore, I would suggest it to you that this hijacking of the social circulating capital by the banking system, aided and abetted by the central bank and the government, because with proper inspection, the bank inspectors would say, this is not eligible, this is not eligible, and would throw out all the garbage in time before the toxic uh, waste gets uh, overwhelming. And, but the government uh, doesn't see it that way. The government says, it's, uh, as far as the numbers are good, and we can say that the economy is increasing, GDP is increasing, that's all fine, that's all we want to project, an image of always going up, never uh, reverse. And the government gives its blessing to these bad practices and the government will instruct the bank examiners to look the other way when they see something fishy. So this is what is happening today, or a large part of it. 
I am willing to commit my own reputation that this is the a large part of the cause of our uh, financial difficulties, which uh, started started uh, showing up in 2008. But it's the result of a much longer period when uh, the uh, high the results of the hijacking of the social. Uh, uh, circulating capital uh, took place and this is all a consequence of eliminating the gold standard, eliminating the bill market and, and this is what we have today and unless there's a radical uh, surgery you have to cut out the uh, cancerous cells from our financial system and that's not happening the government is bailing out these big banks which are like the acceptance house at the verge of collapse the government is pumping artificially created money into the system to keep the game of musical chairs going well i thought it was perhaps helpful if i made this comment so. well no more questions? Well, it's Comments? time to adjourn and to see you in the afternoon.